0: I invite you to open up to Psalm 30, and we continue to, uh, to take a journey through the book of Psalms. As we do so, I'm, I'm hopeful that you can uh, begin to, to see and register that the book of Psalms, the, the chapters that we work our way through, just are the reality of a life of worship. And, uh, you know, when we, when we consider, we consider the walk that we have with the Lord and the life that we live out before God. And as we think about those things, and as I consider that, my desire is to live my life in, in a way that honors God. So, so often when we consider worship and we think about worship, we think about songs we sing or things we play, um, But the Word of God lays out for us that that worship is our life. How we live our life before God is worship. It's giving honor to our King. And so when we come to the Psalms and we're challenged in the Psalms by the things that the psalmist is, is calling for, I just want to encourage you as we open it up, just look at, even though... The things that that in this first book of Psalms, the first seventy Psalms, the, the things that David's going through as he as he pens these are, are it's real life. It's hard stuff. It's no different than the experiences we have in life today. The struggles we have with family, the struggles we have with illness, the struggles we may have, just life in general. David goes through all of those things, but in the midst of it all. He still maintains his integrity with God. And keep in mind, when we talk about that, when we talk about integrity with God, we're talking about singleness of heart. That that my heart is still His. I'm not holding it back or, or pulling it away or, or getting a divided heart where where I'm wanting to live for something else or in some other direction other than that which God is calling me to. I want to have a singleness of heart. That's why... The Word of God tells us that David was a man how? After God's own heart, right? Single-hearted. He wanted to walk with the Lord above and beyond all things. When we look at Psalm 30, it begins... It's a, it's a psalm of the dedication of the house of David. It's kind of interesting. Uh, David wanted to build God a house, but God told him no. You remember? And God said, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you one. And God begins to lay out a promise for David that through him would come a king whose reign would never end. Now, according to the scripture, Jesus Christ has never sat on the throne of David, right? In the in his incarnation, his... uh death burial and resurrection we're coming into the time of easter we're going to be celebrating the resurrection of our lord none of that was jesus coming as king he's presented as messiah and he becomes a sin offering for the world john 3 16 for god so loved the world that he did what he gave his only begotten son right and so he comes never sat on the throne in fact when he stood before Pilate, you remember what he said he said to jesus are you a king and Jesus responds in the affirmative. But he says, if my kingdom were here, my people would fight. But my kingdom isn't here. It's not this physical realm that that so many were focused on at that time. But the word of God tells us in Revelation chapter 19 that there is a day when Jesus comes back as king. And when he sits on the throne... He he will reign forever. And the Bible calls that the day of the reconciliation of all things. You know, all those things that are sideways in your head, all those wrongs, all those questions that you go, why'd that happen? See, in Revelation, Jesus says this at the end of the book of Revelation. He's speaking to you and I and in red letters and he says see I make all things new bringing it all back around and that's something that encouraged the psalmist so when God promised David, I'm going to build you a house when David finishes his palace he sings a praise thinking about the promise of God that he's going to build me a house that he's going to establish salvation, that he's going to do a great and perfect work. And so David begins his psalm in verse 1 with this, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up. It is a it is a, cry, a willful cry of praise. In other words, David, in the midst of whatever's going on in his life, and sometimes when we read the word, we think, you know, everything must have been sunshine and roses for for David. Don't forget, uh, he had a lot of kids that were screwed up. Now, no, none of us have that, right? We don't. None of us have any any little ones that are kind of sideways. No, um, prayerfully, none will ever be as sideways as David's kids were. But his his kids were sideways, and his family's kind of messed up, and. And I'm sure he's looking, and he's hearing the promise of God, I'm going to build you a house. And he's looking at his family and thinking, my, my family's pretty messed up. I, I'm, I'm not sure how that's going to look, but he makes a choice, a willful choice. I will extol you, O Lord. When he uses the, the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D, he's calling God by his name, the Yahweh, Y-H-V-H, Yahweh, or Yehovah, whatever term you want to use, it's all the same in the Hebrew He's calling God by his name. It's a personal declaration exalting God for lifting him up. That phrase, for you have lifted me up, is literally like taking a bucket and dropping it way down in a well and scooping up water and then lifting it up. He's, he's like, Lord, you have lifted me up. Now, all David's problems aren't solved. His whole life isn't all smooth. But he makes a proclamation of will, I will exalt you, because your promise is, once you make them are as good as done, you will make all things new, everything's going to come together, on the day I stand before you, I will keep my heart focused on you, I will exalt you, I will extol you, I will lift your name up. For you have not let my foes rejoice over me. And when we look in the Psalms, when we talk about that, when we talk about the foes of David, remember we're reading poetry. David, he's not just talking about the Philistines. He's not just talking about the physical enemies that he has. Who are our foes? What does the Word of God declare? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers in the darkness, he's he's there's a spiritual battle taking place and Jesus declares that he has wrought the victory even over death paul would say death where is your victory oh death where is your sting the sting of death was sin but sin that's going to get dealt with it's going to be washed away so he's he's declaring and exalting and lifting his name when he says you don't let my foes rejoice over me. I see it not just the the, the physical foes in his life. Death's not going to rejoice over me. The devil's not going to rejoice over me. Because you redeemed me. Because you are with me. Look at verse 2. He says, O oh Lord my God, I cried out to you. It's another personal cry, right? O oh Lord, God's name My God, personal plea. You are my God. I'm following you. I'm with you. No matter what. I cried out to you, and you healed me. The point as we come here in Psalm 30 is probably a time in David's life when he's been going through illness. He's going to talk about it in a little while, about how he was at death's door, and he wasn't sure how things were going to work out. So he called out on the Lord. And so as he begins to tell the story, he says, you healed me. You healed me. He, he proclaims at the very beginning. In verse 3, he declares, oh Lord, again, personal cry to Almighty God. You brought my soul up from the grave. You kept me from dying. You kept me alive so that I would not go down to the pit. Just like Hezekiah all those years ago. You remember? Hezekiah was... was uh, Well, actually, he's in the future when we're in the Psalms. But Hezekiah, as he finds out he's sick one day, and he calls for the prophet, and the prophet comes to him, and Hezekiah's really not feeling good, so he says to the prophet, Will you inquire of the Lord and see if I'm going to get well? So the prophet inquires of the Lord, and he says, uh, The Lord says, No. It's your time. And so Hezekiah, is, it, it's kind of a cool section of Scripture, Hezekiah cries. Well, if you ever been there, how's that any different than how we react? He cries, he rolls over in his bed, and his heart's desire, like so many other people's, is for more time. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with Hezekiah asking for more time. If we trade places with him or we ever find ourselves in that position where we're calling out, we may say the same thing. I want to see the grandkids get married or maybe I want to see my grandkids or just want to spend a little more time with my kids. I don't know, but as Hezekiah cries out, God hears his cry and he says, "Okay," and he gives him more time. Does God always do that? No. He don't always do it. But he did it here. He did it for Hezekiah. He's done it for me. He's done it for others. He, he hears. He responds. He gives. So the Lord saves him. It says in verse 4, So sing praise to the Lord, you saints of His. He's calling now. He's, he's looking around. His house, he was sick. He was going to die. But no, he's, he's, he's alive again. God was with him. And so he calls everyone: sing praise to him, sing praises to him, for he's worthy, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name, Yahweh. It is in the Hebrew. The, the closest thing to it is the Greek word "ego I me," or "I am." It means I, I I, am the becoming one. I am everything. I am everything you need, everything you lack, everything that's missing in your life. I am. So when he says, give praise to God for his holy name, he's saying, give praise to God because he is everything you need, everything that's missing in your life, everything that you don't have, he is And then he's going to go through a a series of contrasts. He's going to contrast a lot of things that that he lays out for. He says in verse 5, For his anger is but for a moment, his favor for a lifetime. So he contrasts anger and favor. He contrasts a moment and a lifetime. As he's building up the, the contrast, he's going to use... Uh, anger and favor. He's going to use moment and lifetime. He's going to use weeping and rejoicing. Uh, he's going to use night and morning and strong and troubled. And the whole point of it is to show us the depth of God's care and the benefit of those who live their lives dependent on Him. The two paths, if you will, that a man could travel. You can walk in the anger of God or in His favor. You can live a moment or a lifetime. You can spend your time weeping or you can spend your time in joy. But here, the psalmist is declaring, because of the integrity of his heart and following God and and having his eyes focused on him, he says, Though I weep, my weeping may endure for a night. What's, What's the emphasis on that? My weeping is temporary. It's not permanent. The weeping is temporary, but joy comes in the morning. The idea is weeping is temporary and joy is eternal. Is eternal. The Bible tells us that when Jesus Christ comes back in the new heaven and the new earth, is there ever going to be night again? The Bible says there's no night. Is there going to be a sun or a moon? Nope. The lamb will be the light. So it will be daytime all the time. It will. The, the point of that is not, oh gosh, well, I'm going to get such a sunburn if it's, that's the way it is. I'll never be able to get out of the, the sunlight. No, the point is, there'll be no time for weeping. That's what night signified. There'll only be time for joy. Rejoicing. So, though my life here be hard and difficult and a struggle, and at the... At the longest, maybe I live a hundred years. I hope not, but maybe I do. A hundred years compared to eternity is so infinitesimally small that Paul would say it's not even worthy to compare with the glory what will be revealed when we're with Jesus Christ. No matter if I live here in weeping for a hundred years. It's so small compared to eternity with God. Eternity with what He has for us. The good that that He is going to deliver. The fact that He's going to make all things right. Whatever goes wrong in this world, Jesus said, I'll make it new. I'll make it right. You won't be disappointed. That's the promise that He gives. And that's why David could sing. That's why David could shout. Now he's going to tell us in verse 6 what was the cause of his trouble. Look what it says. It says, now in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. In his prosperity, in the, in the Hebrew, it means uh, uh, in his complacency. When life was good. When everything was okay. He said he he got filled up with pride. Oh yeah, I got this thing now. That's what he's saying. I got it. I, I have this. I, 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 the idea is <clears throat> he's filled with pride and his hope is in himself. And while his hope is in himself and he's filled with pride, he says, I will not be moved. But look at verse seven. It says, Lord, by your favor, you made my mountain stand strong. But when you hid your face, I was troubled. So look, in Hebrew, when it talks about a mountain poetically, when we're looking at poetry and we're talking about mountains, oftentimes it's talking about kingdoms. You'll remember we, we studied the book of Revelation. <clears throat> we'll get there again one day. But as we study the book of Revelation, it talks about, uh, the, 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 the city that's built on seven hills, right? Seven hills. Uh, Daniel talks about it, built on seven mountains, seven kingdoms. And we sit back and we start to look at the seven kingdoms. It's amazing how you can count down from seven right down to Rome. Boom, 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 straight to it. Well, he, David is saying here, look, you made my kingdom stand. Who made the, the, the kingdom of Israel stand under Under David, was it because he's so smart and he's so wise? You guys remember how Daniel begins, right? With that guy, Nebuchadnezzar. You remember him? And Nebuchadnezzar says, he says, uh, Man, I'm a great guy. I've made all this kingdom. I'm so awesome. And so God talks to Daniel. Daniel, hey, bro, tell Nebuchadnezzar that he's a little prideful. And if he don't mellow out, I'm going to teach him that he's not holding the whole kingdom together. And so Daniel goes to the king says, King, uh, man, I don't really want to tell you this, but uh, your pride is going to bring you down. man. You you need to glorify God. God's the one who gave you this kingdom. He raises up kings. Oh, a little while later, Nebuchadnezzar forgot about it. Remember? He forgot. And he walks outside and he says, Man, look at this great thing that I have built. And the Bible says for seven seasons he was crazy. He ate grass in the field. His hair grew like feathers. I don't know what that means. He looked wild. Crazy guy. His his nails grew like claws. <laughs> He's digging around in the grass. Now I just want you to think about why that's amazing. Think about it. What happens today if... If the ruler of our nation went stark raving crazy and President Obama, don't say he already is, President Obama is out in the grass, eating grass like a cow, he doesn't speak, he doesn't talk, he never shaves again, he flops around like an animal in the front lawn of the White House. Things are going to change, right? But when Nebuchadnezzar did it, nothing changed. His kingdom remained. And at the end of seven seasons, whether that's seven years or, or seven different seasons he went through, it doesn't make any difference. At the end of the time, his sanity returned to him, and Nebuchadnezzar said, man, there is a God in the heavens. And he writes chapter 4 of the book of Daniel, praising God, glorifying God for what he did In his kingdom. David's saying the same thing. When you're with me, God, you establish my kingdom. But if you turn your face from me, I'm without strength. I need you with me. I need you with me. Without you, I am nothing. In verse 8 he says, So I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. He cried out to him. This is, this is during the illness. I, I got sick. I was filled with pride and then I got sick and I was sick and so I cried out to the Lord. I, I needed him. And it's, this is his cry to the Lord. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? It's hard because it's the same thing happens when we, when we read Shakespeare. We look at it and we miss the, the, Rhyme. You get what I mean. What what David is saying is, Lord, if I die, I won't have the opportunity to praise you anymore. I won't be able to glorify you anymore. I won't be able to 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 love you. You know, I, the the experience that I have here with you, that'll all be changed. And David's desire, his cry, is not a cry for himself. It's not in the language. It's not, oh Lord, you know, uh, you got to save me. Because uh, if you don't, I'm not going to be able to praise you anymore. But it's a cry for God, Lord. I want more time to praise you. It's, it's a subtle difference, but that's the difference, and, and it's hard to grasp that when we look at it in in English. But this is what he's saying. He's saying, "Look, I I want to I want to be profitable to you." I want to I do something positive for you. God, I want to live my life for you. I want to glorify you. I, I won't be able to do that if I go down to the grave. So he calls out, hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. Have mercy. And The Bible tells us God's full of mercy. His compassions fail not. That God wants to be merciful. So what does it say in verse 11? You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. Well, God heard his cry. He lifted him up. And in his time of mourning, as he thought it was all going down, in a moment, God could turn it into dancing. That's why I tell people still today, it's always too soon to quit. Because God don't need a lot of time to radically turn things around. He don't need a lot of time. Nanoseconds. <laughs> if God is going to do something, if God is going to move, He don't need a lot of time. He just, He just needs us. To have the integrity of heart, singleness of heart and purpose. I trust you, God, and I'm in your hands. So in a second, in a moment, and the picture is the dancing. Remember David dancing before the Lord? That's the picture. That's the poetic picture. You've turned my morning into dancing. Remember he's moving the, the Ark of the Covenant, right? He puts it on a cart instead of carrying it like he's supposed to, you remember? And and, and it stumbles and falls and, and uh, what's the fellow's name? I lost it. I was, say it. Come on. Uzai. No. It's like that. Yuza. Close. That's close. That was close. Yuza reaches out and touches it. His name means strength. He reaches out and touches it and, and, and he dies. And David freaks out. Remember? He gets all afraid and he puts the ark back and he, and he kind of withdraws. That's a picture of his mourning. And when we let the circumstances around us and, and our Misunderstood attitudes toward God. He thinks, well, God's judging me. I, I don't know why God judged me. I'm trying to do a good thing. I'm trying to do things right by Him. But, but, but it matters to God that we do things God's way. And, and so David doesn't know. And so he isolates. He's mourning. But then he was reading the Word, David, and he goes, Oh man, look at the Word. You know what the Word says? The Levites are supposed to carry that on poles. Man, if the Levites carry that on poles, then it's not going to fall. Nobody's going to get hurt. It's going to be done God's way. Everything will be good. And in a second, his mourning was turned to dancing. And he danced with all his might in front of the ark all the way into Jerusalem. Miles and miles. That's the picture David's painting. When, When God shows up, man, he turns our mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth. And clothe me with gladness. One of my favorite verses. In fact, it's on my wedding ring in the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> you say, "Why is your wedding ring in the bottom of the ocean?" I fell off my finger, and we bought them when we were in Israel. <clears throat> Remember, I told you guys a story. We wanted to get it. Uh, we wanted our wedding rings to say. He will give you back the years that the locust ate, and the guy looked at us like we were crazy. Like, that's a lot of words to put on a ring. So we settled for beauty for ashes. So it, so it had written on it, beauty for ashes. You know the scripture? He will give you beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That's what Dave is talking about here. Why is it on the bottom of the ocean floor? Because I was swimming. I'm fat. And the water's cold. My fat fingers got skinny. When I was swimming and... Bloop, it, body surfing in a wave, come off. God's going to restore it when I get to heaven. He knows where it's at. <laughs> That's what I tell my wife anyways. So that... <laughs> So that I don't get in any trouble. So David says, you put off my sackcloth and clothe me with gladness. So to the end, that my glory will sing your praise. So so that's kind of an important concept, guys, that, that David is saying my glory. When when the people see the, this kingdom and they see this house that you built for me and they see this nation that's been established, my glory, that the, the glory that the people around me give me, that's going to go to you. Uh, my glory is going to praise you. I'm going to, I'm going to praise God because it's God who has done it all. And we'll sing praise to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. See, it begins with a statement of will. I will extol you. And it ends with a statement of will. I will give thanks to you forever. Forever, I'm going to have my hope in you. We turn now to Psalm 31, which is a psalm to the chief musician, another psalm of David. (laughs) And there's three parts to this psalm. And as we look at the first part, the first part basically is saying this. When others do evil, trust in God for His strength. When others do evil, trust in God for His strength. Look how it begins. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. So he begins calling out to God that it's in him, in him, in you, I put my trust. The, the psalmist, or, or actually Paul would say in his epistles 169 times he uses the phrase in him or in Christ to, that we're to be in him, that our trust is in him, that the picture is painted that we are, are putting on Christ, right? Taking off the old man, putting on Christ. So we're inside of him. It's the same idea here. In you, Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down, stoop over, Lord, listen. Bow down your ear to me and deliver me speedily. Be the rock or my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. Now look as he turns in verse 3. For you. So he begins in verse 1 and 2. And he's, and he's talking about putting his trust in God. That God is his strength and his deliverer. He's the one who's going to take care of him. But in verse 3, it got personal. Do you see it get personal? In verse 3, he says, you are my rock. It's like in 1 and 2, he's, he's talking to a crowd of people. And he says... In, in in you, Lord, I put my trust. Let me not be ashamed. Deliver me. Bow down your ear. Deliver me. But in verse 3, he looks up. You, God, you are my rock. You are my rock and my strong tower. The thing where I find protection. So he in verse 3, it's that, it's that plea for God's protection. And at the end of verse 3, it's the plea for God's direction. You are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your, your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Show me where to go. Things are a little dicey right now. A lot of people think that Psalm 31 is a psalm that he wrote at a dark time in his life. You remember I told you he had family problems. Dysfunctional family didn't start, you know, during our era. There were always dysfunctional families. David had one child. He had, he had children by a lot of different marriages. Some people live in that world still today, right? And his kids didn't always get along. In fact, he had one son rape one of his daughters. And then he had the brother to that daughter who had been raped by one of his other sons. By another marriage, that brother killed the, the one who had raped his sister. Well then the one who had killed the other brother because of what he'd done to his sister decided to go live with the in-laws i'm going to go i'm going to go live with my, my grandpa he's a a king of the philistines i'm going to go over there gath and he began to to brew up a rebellion and david's kind of bummed you know he's sad because he's got a dead son and a hurt daughter and a son that's running so he makes a peace with Absalom to let Absalom come back home and Absalom comes back home and continues to brew his rebellion and then he marches on his dad and his desire And David's number one counselor, his name was Ahithophel, he sides with Absalom. When you think, wow, Ahithophel, one of David's trusted companions, he sides with Absalom, why would he do that? Oh, Ahithophel had a granddaughter once too. Her name was Bathsheba. She was married to one of the mighty men of david one of the guys who stayed with david in the caves one of the guys who was with him from the beginning and david killed him so he could take his wife so ahithophel saw this as an opportunity to get david back for what he'd done so he sided with absalom it's a dark time in david's life so when we come to Psalm 31 and we, we hear the cries of him, Deliver me in your righteousness. This is the cry of a father whose son is trying to kill him. A son who he desperately loves. And feels responsible for because, it's because of his life choices that his son is the way he is. It's a no-win situation. No matter what happens, David's going to lose. But in the psalm, he's looking for his protection and direction. What I do and how I do it's got to come from you, God. I don't know what to do. See, God is the redeemer of any situation. God is the one who can show him the way, and so that's how he cries. He he wants God to show him. Lord, show me what to do. Look at verse four. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. He he everywhere. Every choice he makes, he's saying, no matter what I do, this is going to end bad. God, you got to pull me out of the net. You gotta pull me out of the net. You gotta be my strength. So when others do evil, when others come against you, when they got you trapped and hemmed in on every side, and it doesn't you don't know what to do, what's he saying? Trust God for his strength. Look at verse five. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Does that sound familiar? that sound familiar. There's another king of Israel who said those words. Hanging from a cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O God of truth. So David comes to that point. The prayer of commitment. The prayer of commitment is, look, um, I don't know how this is ever going to work out good. So I put myself in your hands, God, whatever you want to do. You know how I know David meant that? David did what no other king has ever done. He just walked away. Does anybody ever do that? Hostile takeover. Somebody's coming to take the company and, and, and the, it's like the dude just says, yeah, okay, cheers. Walk away. He walked away from it all. All the gold, all the silver, everything. He just walked away. He said, God, if you want me to be king, I'll be king. If you want me not to be king, I'll walk away. I don't care. I don't want this more than I want you. That's a man after God's own heart. Whatever you got, God, whatever whatever you got for me, I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to trust in you. He says in verse 6, look, I have hated those who regard useless idols. Remember I told you in Hebrew, don't look don't read those words like we like we say them in English. Love and hate in Hebrew are idioms for for choosing or rejecting. So so not that it's wrong for you to hate idols, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying I've rejected that life. I re- I utterly reject that life of idol worship and And those false gods. I totally turn my back. I reject it. And then the word but, which is a word of strong contrast. But I trust in God. I trust in you. I commit my spirit into your hands. And then we have a statement of will. Don't miss it in verse 7. He says, I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy. I don't know if he is right then. And I know at the end of the story, he doesn't. But what he's saying is, there will come a day. It's not always going to be like this. When I will rejoice in your mercy. I will rejoice in your deliverance. I might not feel it right now. I might not be experiencing it this exact moment. But I am making a statement of faith in the ultimate outcome of it all. I trust in you and I will rejoice. For you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities. And have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have put my feet in a wide place. So here's what he's saying. You, God, you consider my trouble. You, you see it all. You've known my soul, my, my soul, how I am, the core of my being and my desires for you in the middle of this adversity. And you don't shut me up. You don't close your ears to me when my enemies are around me. You're, you're hearing me. So, so I can trust and no matter what happens, I'll be safe. With you. That's what he means when he says, You have not shut me up to the hand of my enemy. You put my feet in wide places. I'm stable. I'm stable where I'm at because I'm with you. And as long as I'm with you, everything is going to be okay. So no matter what's going on, his, his, his uh, decree to us, trust in God for his strength. So we come to the second part of the psalm in verse 9. Uh, nine through eighteen, when others cause pain, just ask God for His mercy. When others do evil, trust God for His strength. Part two, when others cause pain, ask God for His mercy. Verse nine begins: "Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble." Now I want you to listen to how he describes. Himself physically and mentally. The state that he's in. The state that he's in. I'm in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Do you, do you get the picture? The, the poetic picture? Of my eye. I'm crying so much I can't see. All I'm doing is weeping. A father weeping for a child who wants to kill him. And he don't know how to save him and the reality is he can't so he's he's weeping his eyes are wasting it's like my eyes are melting from tears in my head and and my soul and my body my my soul is is the his life force and his his body he's saying um, all of me is wasting away he's going to describe it in verse 10 for my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing, and my strength fails. What's he say? Because of my iniquity. <laughs> oh man. That Hebrew word iniquity is literally means twisted. Cause I'm twisted. Why is he having all this trouble in his family? He knows. God said to him, David, because of the choice you've made today, the nations blaspheme my name. And the sword will never depart from your family. And I don't want you to see that as God's judgment. I don't see that as God's judgment. I see that as the consequence to David's choice. David, you chose that road. And when you chose that road, there's there's an implosion of your family. It's going to be destroyed and distorted and torn up. And so David says, man, I'm, I'm sighing and I'm weeping. My body's falling apart because I'm watching the, the effects of my sin lived out in my children. My, my body just is wasting away. And self-examination tells me, I started this road. And I I can't do anything to change it. For a moment's pleasure, I sacrificed at minimum four lives. We never think about that when we make choices. Four lives sacrificed. So David says in, in verse 11, I'm a reproach. Among all my enemies. So all my enemies hate me. And then you have the word but. Strong contrast. In contrast to my enemies. I'm also a reproach among my neighbors. My own people hate me. And I'm repulsive to my acquaintances. My friends hate me. My friends hate me. My people hate me. My enemies hate me. And those who see me outside flee from me. Run away from me. When David leaves Jerusalem, he's walking away and the people kind of line the path and a guy named Shimei just kind of follows along beside him and tells him how much he hates him every step of the way. David, you've Good for nothing. All the way out of town. And one of David's mighty men who's still with him, Abishai, wants David to let him go cut off his head. Just let me go kill him, David. I'm tired of listening to that guy talk. And David says, how do you know that guy's not being the voice of God for me right now? Oh, you don't touch him. You don't touch him. So you feel the despair? The depression? The depression? The anxiety? His his life is, is upside down and crazy. In verse 12, he says, I'm forgotten like a dead man. Out of mind. And then my favorite part in this whole chapter. I am like a broken vessel. That's why I like that, that song we did. The alabaster jar. I'm broke i'm broken. at your feet god your feet i'm broken and so david declares i'm i'm broken i hear the slander of many and fear is on every side all these people shouting at me while they take counsel together ahithothel and his son while they take counsel together against me they scheme to take away my life so he's just laying out where he's at So, so, you know, whenever, when, sometimes people come to the word, they think all the Bible's only full of happiness. (laughs) Man, that, that doesn't get it much thicker. Despair, depression, anxiety, all that stuff. They scheme to take away my life. And then verse 14 begins with a strong word of contrast. But as for me, I trust in you. I don't know what to do. My life's such a mess right now. My family's such a mess right now. The choices I made have brought me to this place. What, what else can I do? I trust in you. I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. Verse fifteen: My times are in your hand. So deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. That verse is the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8.28. For we know all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. He says, my times are your hands. I belong to you. Do what you will. Deliver me. Don't deliver me. Either way, I'm with you. In verse 16, he says, So make your face shine upon your servant. He's literally saying, he's, he's in that place, he's depressed, he's weeping, he's crying, he's all tore up, and he says, Look, God, I, I need I need your help so that I can reflect you. Because all I can reflect right now is depression, anxiety, and and weeping. So God, I I want your face to shine on me. I want people to be able to see you through this grief, God. I want you, so save me for your mercy's sake. So when other people cause you pain, when your own sin causes you pain, ask God for His mercy. Save me for your mercy's sake. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you, I trust you. Let the wicked be ashamed, let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. Let them be ashamed, let them be afraid, let them freak out, I'm going to trust you. I I can't do nothing else. I'm just going to trust you. Give me your mercy. And then the third section of the psalm. When others see the victory, give God the glory. Oh, how great is your goodness which you have laid up for those who fear you. Which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. For you shall hide them in the secret place of your presence. I don't, don't miss this. Verse 20. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence. That's poetry for keep them in the Holy of Holies. Could anybody go into the Holy of Holies? No. Only one guy could ever go in the Holy of Holies. He's saying keep them. Keep them in the secret place of your presence. Being in God's presence. The promise of... uh, The picture is like God holding you. (laughs) I'll never forget my... my, I had an uncle. My dad had, I forget how many. I want to say seven brothers and sisters, but a lot. Big family for us anyway. And um, his youngest uh, brother... Was gay, in and out of the homosexual lifestyle his whole life. He married a woman twice, um, was a worship leader in a church, and he would be approached in church by other gay men, and he'd leave his wife and take off with him. When he was, I don't know, 40 something he found out he had AIDS and um, he was dead pretty soon after that in the last few years he lived with us he he, nobody was with him he's just alone dying alone and he would cry out to God you know Lord (laughs) forgive me save me and he would tell us his family how do I know how can I how how do I know if if God forgives me how do I know if he restores me how do I know if if uh, I belong to him I made all these choices I did all these things and now I'm just wasting away waiting to die and so he'd cry out to God and one night God gave him a dream that he was in a rocking chair, and God was holding him, telling him it was going to be okay. Well, he still died of AIDS, but it was like that verse: "You hide him in the secret place, the secret place of your presence." There' are no sin you can do that's outside of God's ability to forgive if you want forgiveness you can have it he said give glory to God when other people see the victory and that's the way my uncle lived out the last days of his life glorifying God for the forgiveness that he gave him. For you have uh, saved me, hid me in the secret place of your presence from the plots of men. And you shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. So blessed be the Lord. For he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste I am cut off from before your eyes. David saying... When this was all going on, God, I just said, I'm doomed. God's watching me and I'm going to die. I deserve to die. Done a lot of wrong things. He said, I said in my haste. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. You heard me. And then he looks to all the people and says, oh, love the Lord. Lord all you his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud. So be of good courage and he will strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. And David's heart was a mess. The Bible tells us that David fled from Jerusalem and, and he receives direction from the Lord, that God does want him to fight for the kingdom that he is, God's chosen king. So he tells Joab, he says, Joab, don't touch my son. We'll go fight, but don't kill him. Don't kill my son, he's in a state of rebellion. How we used to tell the story in Sunday school. You remember the story of Absalom, right? The battle goes the wrong way. David's guys are winning Absalom's riding away but he was a vain guy who had long hair he thought a lot about how good he looked with long hair he was riding under <laughs> he's riding under a tree and the, his hair got stuck in the tree and ripped him off the horse so Joab and his soldiers found Absalom hanging in a tree by his hair alive what did david ask joab to do don't don't kill him joab he's in a state of rebellion don't kill him like that what joab do killed his son and the bible says david wept so loud and so hard and for so long that his own army started to lose heart. Broken hearted because he can't ever make peace with Absalom now. That's how their story is going to end. And from all that pain and all that despair comes David's psalm. That God will give you the strength you need in your despair. That God will give you heart you need if you just Hope in him. Joab got mad at David and came and told David, Knock it off. Your guys won. Get out there and tell your guys before they lose heart. So David shook off his grief and he went out. And he encouraged his men. But the heart of a father was still broke. And that heart, broken... Only found its wholeness in the promises of a God who says, I can redeem everything. I can redeem it all. David, just follow me. And so David closed the page on that chapter and eventually stopped crying and weeping and continued to trust God and God continued to bless him and continued to establish him and continued to do all the things God had promised he would do for him and one day David closed his eyes here and he opened his eyes Before the Son of David. That's the title of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He'd stand before him. And in that moment, standing before his Savior, he felt the mercies of God, the forgiveness of God, and he wiped away every tear and he made all things new so that David would be able to say throughout the Psalms I am not disappointed that I trust in him what we need so that we can follow in those footsteps because look when I say God gives him all that stuff back he don't ever get Absalom back Absalom's choice were made but he gave him a whole heart back he gave him back joy for his weeping he gave him back a garment of praise for the weariness and the heaviness of soul he restored his soul so his pain is not eternal it's just for a moment the weeping in the night But joy comes in the morning. So what is it that gives us that? That victory in our life? In our time? Faith. Do you trust that God will do for you what He did for David? Because he was just a man. Broken just like we are. But he trusted God And God delivered him.